Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. I'm your host, and this is episode number 229, and I'm still getting over being sick. You'll hear it in this episode, I think. Uh, a few times I had to put myself on mute because I was coughing or clearing my throat or something. Um, our guest, I told him before we hit record, I said, if I if I go on mute and I'm gagging, it's not because I'm gagging because of you. <laughs> it's because I'm gagging because of the sinus infection that is running rampant through our house. Uh, so anyway, I did my best. I tried to edit out any of the weird sounds. Uh, my voice, you can still hear, is a little bit weird, a little bit crackly, but I'm here and we're doing the best that we can. This is real life. But today's guest is Jonathan Foster, and uh, he's going to talk to us about his most recent book, Theology of Consent, Mimetic Theory in an Open and Relational Universe. Jonathan recently received his doctorate uh, under the guidance of Thomas Ord. Uh, so Thomas Ord's been on the podcast a bunch of times. He wrote the book called God Can't, uh, God Can't Q&A, and a whole bunch of other books about love and open relational theology. He's a very big voice in that world of open and relational theology. So if you're into that kind of theology, obviously you know uh, Thomas Ord. But here's the thing. This book is basically uh, Jonathan's dissertation in book form. And that sounds scary and horrifying because dissertations, oh, isn't that like a big to-do? Like it's really technical. I can't possibly read it. No, no. He wrote this dissertation, uh, like I said, under the guidance of Thomas Ord in a way that it makes perfect sense to no matter where you are on your scholarly spectrum, whether you consider yourself someone who's really, really deeply learned and educated in this stuff or somebody who's really just dipping their toe in it, this book, he did a really good job at making some really technical information accessible to the everyday person. So you've got to get this book. It's so good. Uh, we talk about so many important things in this episode. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, he's definitely going to come back on again uh, talk about some more some more things. He he starts off the episode when sharing a bit about himself and his story, and as you'll see in the episode, and you'll see why, I had all sorts of other questions I wanted to ask him in the moment, but I'm like, no, 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 no got to stick to the book because I brought him on to talk about this book, uh, but we're going to do a follow-up conversation and talk a little bit more about some other some other stuff. Uh, I'll put the link to his stuff in the show notes, uh, my book in the show notes as well, Patreon, buy me a coffee. Not going to talk too much. I can't talk much longer. I got to go get some more water, a cough drop, something, but enjoy the show. Uh, this is a fun one. Episode number 229 with the one and the only Jonathan Foster. Enjoy. Wish I had a mansion. Wish I was dressed with something fancy. Uh, wish I on a pot and so go with the rainbow. By the time Clancy. Uh, wish I had no debt. Maybe then I can't flex. Go and hit a run, I'm a check. Wish I had no other sand, most beat, I'm a chest. Wishing for my people. Uh, wish I had more better leaders. Have enough to make our own land. Name my own picture, we bring our own sand. Wherever we live is so bland. So much for high on demand. Tiptoe around throwing high lows. Feel like James Brown, love we go here to dance. Let me talk. At the end of the day, we know who's at a fall. We got our hands up, ready for a box. Undisputed, got the own lot. Champion, go ahead, call the ambulance. So we said our own ambience. Dub TTG, train to go. Let's talk, no rambling. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Today we are joined by Jonathan Foster to talk about his doctoral dissertation turned book, which we're going to dip our toes 
into today. It's called Theology of Consent, Mimetic Theory in an Open and Relational Universe. And so, Jonathan, welcome to the show. It's great to connect with you. Hey, Glenn, thank you for having me. It's great to connect with you and the listeners or the watchers or however this thing is going to be uh, uh, living on the World Wide Web. But however it's, uh, it's going to unfold and make its way out there. <laughs> that's right. Whatever the case might be, it's cool to be with you. And I'm always thankful to talk about the work. Thank you. So as you mentioned in our emails, we've been friends uh, for a while on Facebook, but I guess doing a podcast recording together makes us really friends. So now we're like officially friends. Yeah, I really feel like this is helping define the relationship. We're uh, we're we're taking the next step forward. <laughs> yeah, you so, want to get uh, together tonight? We'll we'll get we'll grab dinner, watch a movie. Absolutely. Let's, order out let's some Chinese it. food, whatever. I like it. <laughs> awesome. So today we're going to talk about, uh, like we said, your doctoral dissertation that's being turned into a book, uh, which is really cool because I've never actually had someone on the show before where our conversation revolved around their dissertation. And to be honest with you, after I wrote mine, I was thinking about this before. After I wrote my dissertation for like a good year, the word dissertation would make me break into a sweat. <laughs> and so this is like the first attempt to revisit that word and kind of explore somebody else's work. But I'm looking forward to it. Before we get into that, though, could you maybe spend a little bit of time uh, telling me and your listeners about, about yourself? You know, who are you? Uh, what do you do? Who is Dr. Jonathan Foster? <laughs> that doesn't even sound right. Dr. <laughs> Jonathan Foster. Right. Um who am I? Like, so I'm uh, been a partner of uh, my girl for 30, what, three, 32 years now. Mm. Had three kids. Uh, we're empty nesting now, which is a incredibly wild new adventure. Wow. And it just, it just arrived way too early. I mm. can't believe that. How old are your kids? Um, so our youngest is 21. He's in school mm -hmm. out here in Colorado, Colorado, where I'm at today. And then um, our oldest boy is 26, mm. and he runs um, a nonprofit that our family started um, after our oldest passed away, who would have been 28 right now, mm. but she passed away New Year's Day 2015. Mm. So, and she was interested in uh, being a medical missionary down in Haiti. So we started work down there. So over the last seven years, it's just grown and it's really, really cool. Wow. And my boys kind of grew up in that. And my oldest in particular, particular, really just got interested in that. And so he's the executive director now of lovehaiti.org. Mm. So that's, you know, that's a big, huge part of who we are. Not only the event of, of uh, losing our daughter, but um, just that whole Haitian piece that's come out yeah. of that and, oh. and our family that's grown up in that. And let's see, I've been, um, I've been a church planning pastor most of my life and I was a part of a denomination most of my life. And then that denomination voted me off the denominational Island a couple, three years ago. Mm. So that was a really interesting, uh, transition. It has been, and to just, I mean, I've been a writer. Um, so it's just been a lot, it's been a very full life, uh, full of a lot of stuff that has invited me to ask a lot of questions. And so yeah. that's kind of where I, that's why I'm so curious about theology and, and wound up doing the dissertation. Yeah. So now that you say you were voted off the denominational Island, I have lots of other questions that mm -hmm. I'm going to try to push away <laughs> yes. because I, that could be a whole nother podcast. I think that we could probably explore. Absolutely. It just means we should get together another time and explore it. There you go. We'll take the friendship to the next podcast. That's level. right. That's, That's it. Right. Yeah. 
All right. So, and you have other books out, right? This isn't your own, this book coming out. That's right. Your only book. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was always kind of interested. I've always done creative kind of stuff. My background's mm -hmm. in music and I'm always drawing and sketching and doing things. Mm -hmm. And then um, seven, eight years ago, I really got into writing and it became really help, helpful for me. And I think healthy for me mm -hmm. and, um, and then hitting publish and actually going through the whole process and finding publishers, although sometimes they were self-published, but it's basically the same process. All of that really kind of forced me to be very as well. Yeah. Rigorous, I think would be the right mm -hmm. word with it and to uh, treat it like, you know, respectfully and, so I've, I've tried to be a writer now for seven or eight years mm. and I've, I've sold a few books. Um, there's a few books that haven't sold so well, <laughs> but uh, that's, that's the name of the game. And right. so the dissertation kind of felt like it felt like very similar to the other things, just a little bit more intense, a little bit more involved, but it's, yeah. it was basically the same idea. Now, did you like edit the dissertation at all for a more public, like a wider audience, or is it pretty much, this is what you handed in and this is what's getting printed well i hope i don't scare any listeners or <laughs> watchers uh, because i really didn't edit that edit it that much i'll follow up my question with my own thoughts so go ahead okay good <laughs> so when i first started studying with um tom ord dr thomas j ord was my mentor um you know i told him right up front you, you know what i hope to do long term is to write whatever else i do um i'll continue to write and so this piece, I approached it, like I said, pretty much like one of the other books. And um, it, it does get a little more intense. It's probably mm -hmm. a little bit academic for some folks at times. But overwhelming response that I've had has been, yeah, it has some, has some depth, but it's readable in some spots. Mm -hmm. So I think that's cool. And I hope people will slow down long enough to read, you know, healthy theology anyhow. So yeah, I didn't have I didn't really edit it too much for the book form. Yeah, and like I said to you before here record, I mean it's it's a very readable work because when you first sent it to me I was like, "Oh, a dissertation because I've read I wrote my own dissertation which I think was fairly readable, but I've read other ones that are like, I don't know what in the world this person talking about. <laughs> it's like way over my head. So I was like, I don't know what this is going to be, but let's give it a shot. And when I was reading, I was like, "Oh, this is a very readable thing." So that makes sense that you worked with Tom Ord that he would kind of allow you to kind of structure it that way. I think that's really good. Yeah, I was very thankful for that because it was more meaningful for me in that way. Mm -hmm. um, and well, and really what else matters, right? It's more meaningful for me. So there you go. That's right. That's all that matters at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So maybe for the, the, the dissertation, give us the elevator pitch or the high level overview of what this dissertation slash book is about. Like when you had to pitch the topic to Tom, as a workable doctoral project, like what was your pitch? You know, what's this about? Why is it important? Well, when I pitched Tom, I had <laughs> like three pages of stuff, just like one idea after the other. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you know Tom, he's like, you know, one of the more gracious human beings on the planet. Yes. <laughs> he was like, I think you probably need to pare this down a little bit. This is uh, great, which, but yeah, <laughs> exactly. I had all kinds of stuff that I wanted to get into psychodynamics and Hegelian thought and Lacanian thought. And so, um, and, and hopefully I will get into those things uh, one day, but it turns out I had some other work to do first. So you want to write for the rest of your life. So you got plenty of, right. plenty of things got, to write about. <laughs> I have plenty of, plenty of topics there and, um, and, and enough curiosity to keep me going for a long time. 
So what we pretty quickly landed on, what we both realized was uh, for me that Rene Girard's mimetic theory and Girardian thought in general has been incredibly helpful mm -hmm. and insightful for me as I've, you know, navigated and evolved and grown in my theology and psychology and well, sociology, anthropology, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So we started talking pretty early, on, pretty early on about, hey, what would it be like to take this thought and bring it together with open and relational theology thought? Because, um, well, for one, it was there were both uh, paradigms that were really helpful for me. But number two, as far as we knew and still know, that officially no one has tried to do something like that. Now, since then, um, a friend of mine, Andre Rabe from South Africa, who's a Girardian, is doing a very similar thing with Tom. And so his stuff will be coming out next year, though, interestingly enough, he writes his project is completely different than mine, mm. which is so fascinating because we're, we're both basically kind of starting from the same idea. But yeah, it was we, we landed on that. Let's bring these two venerable, huge concepts together mm -hmm. and see what could happen. And really, it, I mean, there could be 10, 10 books written on all of this. <laughs> There's so much information. But I just kind of, yeah, I kind of owned it and took took this stuff in and tried to reinterpret it as it was happening in my own life. Mm -hmm. And as I see it playing out with, with people. And so that's kind of where we went. And I'll just say one other thing. And mm -hmm. that is I, I kept being reintroduced to the concept of consent. Mm. And so that's where the title kept coming back to me, a theology of consent, which I think consent is a really important word in a world today. But it turns out it's an important concept and word for all time. Mm -hmm. And that if God is love, which I think is what's going on, the fundamental characteristic of love might be consent. And it's, uh, it still messes with my mind, even, even though I've been thinking about it for, you know, off and on. Well, no, pretty much on for three years now. <laughs> it's nonstop, right? When you're it's pretty it. much nonstop. You dream know about it. Yeah. I literally, you yeah. literally, I actually literally had a dream just even the other night about it. <laughs> um, so consent is a really subversive, fascinating, powerful concept. Yeah. So that emerged and something I wanted to pursue. But long uh, answer to your question, how did mm -hmm. this come about? It's really like Gerard is so speaking helpful and insightful and open and relation relational theology is too. So what happens when you bring them together? Yeah, that's so good. All right. So I figured we could go, we could go to all three of those places. We could start with maybe okay. mimetic theory. We could go to open relational theology and the final piece of bringing them together uh, because those are all the, the two things like mimetic theory and open relational theology are things that our listeners are kind of familiar with because we've had Tom on the show before. We've had other people kind of mention those things. But as I always tell Tom, and as I always tell people, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a scholar. I, I know just enough to be a little dangerous. So I don't know. I don't know much. Uh, so talk to me like I don't know anything because you wouldn't be far off <laughs> if that's the case. Uh, but let's start with mimetic theory. What, what, is, what is this? What does it mean? What does it have to do with God and the Bible and our, and our listeners? Well, first of all, I'm not sure how we define what the criteria for a theologian or scholar is, but I don't feel like I am one either. <laughs> well, I you wrote still... a dissertation about this stuff, so we'll <laughs> this call... is and true. you're a doctor, you're a doctor. <laughs> this is true. So we'll just pretend as if I am one. Um, so yeah, we can talk about mimetic theory. Mm -hmm. I, I usually give like four or five uh, different concepts that we'll try to briefly unpack. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's multiple sub points to all of it. 
but it's um, I'll just say them real quick and then maybe we'll go back and sure and talk about them. But it's desire that leads to invitation that leads to conflict that leads to what Girard is most well known for probably, which is the scapegoating process. Mm-hmm. Then the last piece is ritualization. And sometimes what's overlooked with mimetic theory is, or at least as I've read and interacted with folks, mm-hmm. is the idea that all of this plays out against a backdrop of humanity where it feels like, like a common denominator for a lot of us humans is our intense awareness of our own uh, to use a philosophical word, lack, mm-hmm. our really strong uh, awareness of, of the ways that we have fallen short and mm-hmm. maybe feel guilty or shame or bad about who we are, that seems to be a really important piece to all of this. Mm-hmm. And so you got that kind of idea, and then this idea of desire uh, starts to grow in a Girardian world, which, by the way, is very similar, identical, actually, to open relational world, everything is relational, Um, everything is interconnected. So, you know, my desires don't just, you know, emerge out of nowhere, Mm -hmm. they emerge because I've been interacting with folks, you know, like, I didn't even know um, I needed, like, extra colors and stuff on my video until I started watching you this morning, right? There you go. Now you know. Or a cool cool graphic in the corner of my, like... (laughs) I didn't even know I desired that until I see you desire that, which sure. I'm only, I'm half kidding, but that's kind of the way this plays out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. You know, our, um, our entire marketing industry is built upon mm-hmm. showing us what our models want. Yeah. And so they don't really tell you what you want. They don't really tell you the kind of soda that you want to drink. Yeah. They, they tell you the kind of soda that your model wants to drink. And so our desire- I want that new iPhone because I see- this person oh, has it. Yeah. Oh, totally. And I'll be 100%. just like them if I have it. Yeah. And we're, and part of the reason that this kind of works is that again, oh, I'm aware of my own lack. Mm-hmm. So I see something in you and I'm tricked into thinking, oh, you have like, this is a, this is a non-lacking person here. Right. Yep. I mean, of course, no one wakes up in the morning and says that, mm-hmm. you know, no one watches the Coca-Cola commercial and says, oh, those are non-lacking subjects. I'd like to be like <laughs> Right. It's just going on subconsciously, but, <laughs> but it's really fascinating. It seems to exacerbate the problem. Yeah. And so the desire leads to an invitation. So I want to be like you. And so I, you know, buy the same stuff that you're purchasing. I act in the same way that you act or talk in the same way. It could be a hundred different things. I, I might go for the same uh, guy or girl that you're in a romantic relationship with, or I might want the degree or, you know, who knows, maybe somewhere I found out that Glenn, you know, did a dissertation a few years ago. And I'm like, gosh, I got to be like, you know, I want to be like Glenn. Oh, I want to be like, by the way, like a perfect um, example of a mimetic commercial speaking of a marketing. Well, all of them are great examples, but uh, I don't think there's anything better than the old uh, be, I want to be like Mike commercials. Um, now I'm dating myself a little bit, but Michael, <laughs> when Michael Jordan got huge and the Gatorade commercials and McDonald's commercials. I think it was Gatorade, like be like Mike. So. They, yeah. they didn't sell you on, I mean, they, they would mention it like they thought it was good for you or something. The, 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 what they sold you on was, no, just drink this stuff, be like Mike. I mean, yeah. it was this perfect mimetic thing where they were leveraging your desire to want to be like someone you think has it all together. Yeah. So I'm trying to fast forward through this. Desire at least imitation. Mm-hmm. 
And for Girard, imitation inevitably leads to conflict. And this is for a lot of different reasons we could get into, but the conflict begins to grow and to build because, well, I'll just mention maybe one reason. It, it feels like, it seems like we're scarcity mindset people. We're not necessarily abundance people. And by the way, this is even, this is as true or even more true in the religious world in terms of my own experience, I should say. Um, and probably it could be backed up with some, some data and research as well. But certainly anecdotally, my own observation is in church world, religious world, we're very much motivated by scarcity. And so conflict grows. We want what the other person wants. They want what we want. We give all this attention to a particular object. You know, it's just, it, and we always bring our community in with us. It's never just one-on-one because it's a relational cosmos. Um, Gerard, Gerard's word that he coined with um, another psychologist was um, interdividuality. Mm-hmm. I like that word. It's not an individual. It's an interdividual. You know, we're created in context with others. So the conflict grows and the whole thing moves to the edge of the precipice, you know, the edge of chaos. And so there at the edge, what Girard uncovered was this ingenious way that humanity has developed to deal with all of their internal antagonism and their scarcity, frustration, and their violence even, because really ultimately I think we're talking about violence. Mm -hmm. So there at the edge of the precipice, we're both pointing our fingers at each other Our communities are behind us in the middle of it, pointing their fingers. Everything's getting chaotic. And at the last moment, instead of descending over into chaos, which by the way, sometimes we do, but more often than not, we decide like at a subconscious level to turn and point our fingers at someone else. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we offload. I think that's a really helpful word. We, we offload all of our psycho-spiritual drama onto the backs of, of other people. Mm. And you and I both say, oh, you know, we're not really the problem. It's those other people that are the problem. Yeah. And scapegoating is always built on at least two lies. The first lie is that you and I are innocent. Mm-hmm. And the second lie is, a, is that that other person is guilty. Yeah. And so then we, we scapegoat them. Mm. We blame them. We, we project all of our crap onto them and mm. we throw them into the volcano we push them into the gas oven. We lynch them on a tree. We hang them on a cross. Uh, the list is endless. Yeah. Um, and in more subtle ways too. Like we don't sit with them at the lunchroom table. We write that passive aggressive uh, tweet or that aggressive tweet. <laughs> you know, it, it just goes, it goes on and on. And yeah. so we've now scapegoated um, all of our stuff. And the last thing I'll say because I know I've, I've been talking a while here is part of the reason we do this is it really seems to work. Yeah. And Gerard gives tons of different examples of ways this plays out and probably why we did it and how it works. But scapegoating seems to bring a type of peace. It's like it's cathartic might be a good word for it. The problem is, as we know, the peace never lasts. And mm. so when the conflict builds back up again, we repeat the whole process and then we ritualize it. And so according to Gerard, religion comes out of this whole thing. Religion becomes a way to maintain and process our violence. Yeah. It's pretty interesting stuff when you look at it that way. Yeah. So that, that's the wow. basic that's the basic run through. I hope it didn't take too long, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff with that. Not at all. What, what comes to my mind is that I think that's, 
I've heard the term scapegoating in reference to Gerard mimetic theory. I didn't realize all of the back pieces that you shared yeah. um, here and also in, in your writing. But the thing that always struck me about scapegoating is that it feels like, like I think of my own life when there's even back in like in high school and like middle school and stuff like that, whenever there was like this kid that everybody picked on, it always felt good to rally around a common enemy, right? Like it always felt good to have, have all these friends who don't like this person, just like I don't like them. And that makes you feel stronger, right? And when I look at like the story of Jesus, because you mentioned about the cross, and you even look at things like the Holocaust, you look at even like COVID, you know, the blaming of of Asian people, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Like it feels good to feel like I have these problems and it's that person's fault. And if I can get more people to agree with me that it's that person's fault, all of a sudden I feel stronger. I feel less alone. And it's like an intoxicating, fueling feeling that just ends in disaster every single time. Yeah, it's it's true. Once you begin to see this, you you can't unsee it and you see yeah. it playing out everywhere in our politics, in geopolitical relationships like you just mentioned for sure in COVID that was mm -hmm. happening, you know, not only with Asian people, but then of course it quickly turns into now we're scapegoating the other political party for ways that they're not responding or yeah. are res over responding. Yeah. We begin to scapegoat, you know, healthcare workers, healthcare system, Dr. Fauci. I mean, the list just goes on and on and there's a whole bunch of reasons, but I think you identified one of them. Yes, it does feel like there's strength in numbers. We want to be a part of the crowd. Yeah. And um, that that fuels this thing. All right. So the next piece, let's move over to open relational theology and spend some time there. Like I said, Tom is like the resident theologian on the show. He's come on before yeah. and I asked him all questions. He came on in, in, during COVID and I was asking him all questions about you know, the God can't type stuff and why is all this right. happening and blah, blah, blah. Right. Uh, so people are familiar with his work, but I would like to hear about open relational theology from your perspective. Um, because again, like I said, I'm not a theologian. I don't, I don't not really deep in this stuff. I just have a very general understanding. So if you had to like talk to, talk to somebody brand new to this topic about open relational theology, uh, what is it? How does it work? Sure. Well, yeah. And Tom was a great person to have on. So if this is confusing, just, you know, your listeners can go He's back. He's on my speed dial. He's on my speed dial. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he, he should be. Right. And uh, he's, a, he's a really brilliant person. He's really good at, I mean, he's very good at taking complex ideas and breaking them down. Yeah. I feel like I'm the opposite. I'm really good at taking simple ideas and making them very complex. But uh, sometimes on that note, sometimes I'll ask him a question and I'll, I'll be expecting this long answer because I feel like it's a very complicated question and it's like 30 seconds and he's like waiting for my response. I'm like, I don't even oh. know what to say. <laughs> like I have to process this. <laughs> it's like you are so concise, but yet so profound. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. I do think one of the things he has going for him is he's he's been doing this a long time. It's interesting. He and I are roughly the same age. We come from the same denominational background, mm. um, a lot of similarities, but I'm jealous of him um, because, see, uh, my desires are being mediated by his desires right. uh, because he's been into process open relational for, you know, 20 some years, 20, mm. 30 years longer. Anyhow, enough about Tom. I think it's enough airtime all over the web. Forget. Right. I'm going to edit this part out. Forget Tom. <laughs> exactly. You should. You should. Uh, open and relational. So the idea here, I usually start with a relational piece. And that is this really interesting thing that we've already begun to touch upon. And that is that what we keep learning 
certainly scientifically, is that we live in a relational cosmos. Everything is interconnected. We are entangled at incredibly deep levels mm -hmm. in ways that in years past, we never could have even imagined. Mm -hmm. Essentially, when the scientific revolution began, the, you know, the age of enlightenment, we really went hard down this kind of dualistic, substance-based um, idea like that we could find the building blocks of life and we could break it down in that. We, we, we began to approach life as if it's mechanistic and a machine. Mm -hmm. and, but the, the more science progressed, the more it realized in various and sundry ways that that's not really the nature of reality. And certainly with quantum mechanics and the theory of relativity and all the stuff that happened about 100 years ago, with the dawn of all that, that kicked us full on into this idea that, oh gosh, no, we are interconnected in ways that we never even imagined. Mm -hmm. We're so interconnected really technically we're not even sure where like i'm not even sure where i end and another person begins uh, so that's true interpersonally it's also true in terms of us and the rest of creation and the world you mm -hmm. know i'm looking out at the at the beautiful trees outside my window right now those trees are breathing they're giving off oxygen i'm breathing and giving carbon dioxide back to them yeah. it's this symbiotic relationship that's going on all around us mm. it's true at the microscopic level it seems to be true at the macroscopic level and so open and relational theology really wants to highlight this idea that everything is relational and the the thing that is kind of peculiar about um, ort maybe more than because a lot of people i think kind of intuitively are getting this and or I've heard this enough. They're like, yeah, we live in a relational cosmos. But what ORT does is it says, no, this is even true of the divine. Mm. So God herself is in relationship with us in ways that um, the theistic traditional world uh, doesn't like to uh, admit and want to admit. And I think it causes us a lot of problems because of it. Mm. And so then that introduces the open piece, because if God is truly in relationship with us, which, by the way, is the only kind of God I'm really interested in. I'm really not interested in the God's not in the relationship. You don't want the like, dictator God who's just pulling yeah. the strings. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of don't. Yeah. yeah, I kind of, yeah. For some reason, I don't even like controlling people. So right. I don't, I don't know why I want a controlling God. Um, well, I do know why in in days past where I've, where I wanted that or I felt comfortable with that. I recognize why some people like it. Sure. It does at some level, give you a sense of, oh, like someone is in control here, because if, if God's not, if it's up to me, which is essentially what open relational theology says, it's not necessarily up to me specifically, it's up to me and my relationship with God and my relationship with others. Mm -hmm. Well, that puts a lot of uh, responsibility on my choices yeah. and those kinds yeah. of things. So I get why certain people don't want to go there because mm -hmm. it's a bit scary. But anyhow, the idea is, Whenever you're in true relationship with someone, um, there's a bit of risk and vulnerability involved. If I know exactly how the relationship is going to play out, there is no risk. And if I'm just pulling levers and pushing buttons and making things happen that I already know are going to happen, I mean, it's really not, I don't even think you can call it a relationship. Yeah. It's just this top-down kind of hierarchical, I'm stronger than this other person and I'm going to make it all happen kind of a thing. And I don't, I don't think that's what's going on with God. I don't think that's the, I don't think it's a scientific way to look at it. I don't think it's a biblical way to look at it. 
I don't think it's a uh, intelligent philosophical way to look at it. I think God is in relationship with us. And one of the implications is then, if that's true, then the future is not yet been determined. Yeah. I think the divine has some decent ideas about how certain things are going to turn out and probably mm-hmm. sees the patterns better than we do. <laughs> right. Here we go but, again. That's what exactly, God said. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> Seen this before. Yep. <laughs> I think God's been aware of mimetic kind of, you know, dysfunction that humanity has been involved <laughs> in for a lot longer, you know, long before Rene Girard showed up. So I think God's aware of some of these things, but I don't think it's specifically the future is just, um, in and of itself, it's just this thing that you can't know because it's the future. Yeah. And I think all of that is true because of this intense relational way we are created. Yeah. So rambled a bit there, but the idea is this is that's in a nutshell what open and relational theology is. It's highlighting the relationship piece of it and then realizing the implications play out in such a way that the future has not yet been determined. Yeah. I came into all of this. I've talked about this on the podcast before, but when I was in, so I was in the first year of my doctoral program, which was in an evangelical seminary. And I was beginning to rethink some things. Like I had some stuff in there, like about hell. I was like, that doesn't really make any sense to me. And I was thinking about like the atonement. Like, I'm not really too sure about that. But the big thing that kind of erupted for me was my my wife and I, we had, we had a miscarriage. Mm. And I remember... I've told Tom this before that we were in, in the emergency room and the doctor, they did all their tests and stuff and the place was packed, you know, and they rolled us out into the hallway because they didn't have any rooms and stuff. And so we're out in the hallway. There's all these people out there and the doctor just came by very nonchalantly and very coldly and just said that, you know, the, the fetus is gone, he said, and our hearts just broke because we wanted, we wanted nothing more than to have this baby. And they get this news in that kind of cold environment in that cold way. Like we just, we just broke down. And I remember I went out to get the car to pull it up so I can get my wife. And I remember going out to the car, like yelling at God, like, I can't believe this. You're supposed to be in control. Like, what did I do? And like everything just started to fall apart because I was like, how in the world, can I check all the boxes? You know, how in the world can I hit all the right buttons on the vending machine? You know, like I'm, I went to Bible college. I went and got my MDiv. I'm in a doctoral program. I've pastored a church. I've planted a church. I'm doing all these things, God, all for you and your kingdom. And you just let me down like this. And like, how dare you? And it just, all these questions erupted. And then I started to think about other things like, well, like what about people who get raped? Like, what about, children who are getting raped like if god is present everywhere and god is able to control everything how does god sit at the end of a bed and allow that to happen to somebody and not do anything about it when he has the power to stop it like all these questions were like erupting i didn't know what to do with them and in that evangelical seminary it's not a safe place to ask those those questions (laughs) because the answer you get and the answer we got from you know church people when it came to our miscarriage was you know well you'll get to see that baby in heaven one day and god will there's a purpose. God needed an angel and like all these different things. I'm like, that's just a crappy answer. It doesn't do anything. And it's not, it's not true. And so then I came across Tom's work and I was like, oh, this is very interesting. Cause I never thought of that before. Cause I was ready to just ditch God altogether. Like you, I'm going to blow you off because this is ridiculous. But then I was like, oh, this is, this could bring some healing. This could be like a, a bomb for my soul. 
And then I started to really think about like that night in the hospital, instead of seeing God as this, the divine being who was there pulling the strings, making this happen or allowing it to happen or whatever, it was life happens, but God is there with me in relationship with me, holding me and my wife, walking us through it, walking with us as we go through this, this grievous loss. And I'm sure as you talked earlier about the loss of your own daughter, I'm sure a lot of those feelings came up for you in the midst of all of that as well, I would imagine. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I think a lot of people can relate to that. Maybe not the specific miscarriage, although obviously a lot of people can. Sure. But, but you're right. Um, we're all dealing with these absurd, ridiculous things that happen to us in, in really deeply, intensely personal ways. And um, that is correct for us. I was kind of already processing things a bit different anyhow, mm -hmm. but that thing, you know, for, for us, she was 20 and she was in a car wreck. So, I mean, literally in a heartbeat, she was gone yeah. and huh. it just fueled. It was, it was just like this high octane fuel to all of my thinking and curiosity and questions anyhow. Yeah. And absolutely open a relational theology, both mimetic theory in a kind of a roundabout circuitous way, but certainly open a relational theology yeah. also gave me, I started to say better. I don't want to sound like disrespectful to people who might be listening, who mm -hmm. don't buy into this stuff. Sure, sure. Because a lot of folks, you know, I, 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 I essentially think human beings are, we're just meaning making creatures. We're just trying to basically make meaning out of the stuff that's happened in life. And so um, for some folks, they've done a lot of work and they kind of have something that works for them. And I, I don't love to poke that thing, even though I don't agree with, with a lot of the way that the religious structure has invited us to, or conformed us or formed us to think. So I say all this respectfully uh, for me, it was a better way. It was a healthier yeah. way might mm -hmm. be a better word. Yeah. And health to me really comes down to this one idea, and that is consent. That is vulnerability and risk and the idea that God doesn't control, that life doesn't control any more than I control my kids or my partner. God doesn't control us. Yeah. And because of that, there's this wild randomness and aleatory spirit that, you know, kind of weaves its way through the world. But as you just said really well, that doesn't mean God's not in the middle of all that. doesn't That's mean right. that God's not with it. It's just a different, just a different kind of power. I actually think it's a more sustainable idea. I think it's actually a stronger kind of a power, yeah. but it's, it's definitely different than evangelical world. So yeah, 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 definitely the, the idea of evil and theodicy, all of that, I think, um, as fueled the flame of me uh, moving into open relational thinking. Yeah, for sure. And I, I want to echo what you said too about, you know, it's not, it, it's not about shaming what somebody else believes. Like, it's not like this is an elite way of understanding God and everybody else is wrong. It's, that's why, that's why I love this podcast. You know, it's called the what if project. Cause we, we asked the question, like, what if there are ways of thinking about God that are different than what our traditions have handed us? And for me, the tradition was, God is the puppet master pulling the strings and there's a right. blueprint for your life and for the next bazillion years. And this is what it is. And that's, that's it. And God is 
there, but you know, the, the plans already that made. And for me, like, right. it just, like I said, like that just fell apart for me at some point, but now I'm realizing, oh, there's other ways to think and other people might not be at that other place yet. And that's fine. I mean, they might never be there, but whatever helps you, you know, be a better human uh, over the course of your life is what it's about. Yeah. And I love what you're doing because you're giving permission for people to process this differently. And probably, I know this was the case for me and sounds like it might've been for you too. Um, I just wasn't given that permission. I mean, every once in a while in strange kind of out of the way places, I was given that permission, but by and large, the system doesn't really, didn't really want me to think differently. And of course, once I started to think differently, it, it, that proved to be accurate because they, you know, they just spewed me out of that that whole thing. So I think a part of what you're doing is you're, you're expanding that narrative and that conversation, you're giving people permission and the idea that, wow, there might be a healthier way to process life and love and God and relationships. That's right. Thank, thank God there is, because if, if all we have <laughs> is, is what we've had in the past, well, all we're going to get is the same kind of problems we've had. That's right. But I think there's a, I think there's a better way. That's so right. I think, encouragement is for people just to take a breath and try to dive into some of it. Yeah. And as I'm sure we'll talk about in another episode together, I was not given that permission. So this mm. podcast is my act of rebellion, I guess you can say, nice. to, to take the permission for myself and give it to others um, as well. I love it. But the, the last piece of your work that I want to talk about is kind of bringing these two worlds together. So we talked about mimetic theory, talked about open relational theology. And the last piece is kind of marrying these two together so to speak so what does that mean like what does it look like to bring these two things together why is that important and what does that do for us yeah there's a hundred different ways to answer this as every one of my questions it seemed to have a hundred different ways to go (laughs) well it's my fault because i you know i dove into all of this (laughs) yeah there's a there's some really interesting common denominators between um girardian thinking and open relational theology now to be clear People may know this already, but to be clear, uh, Girard was not an open and relational theologian. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there is evidence somewhere that he did interact with some of Alfred North Whitehead's writing. And Whitehead, of course, was the, the progenitor of process theology out of which open and relational really comes. And I would have loved to have, you know, had the opportunity to be in a room with Girard and Whitehead and let them talk about some of the stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Girard is, it's, they're, they're two different things. Like Girard is anthropological, open and relational has some anthropology, but it's, it's a lot bigger. And it's like these huge metaphysical questions and scientific and all this uh, kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Not that Girard isn't scientific, but it's just more anthropological. So what I intuited up front, and one of the things, one of the reasons I probably got into this was I intuited that both. And I think this, um, is true. It's this has borne out to be true mm-hmm. that both ideas are deeply suspicious of presenting the, the concept of a God who needs sacrifice in order to, well, in order to like us or forgive us or sure. love us or save us. I mean, you know, just the, whatever word not, you want to use, <laughs> whatever word you want to use. There's a bunch of them that are synonymous. They basically yeah. mean the same thing. What they basically mean. Uh, loosely speaking, is this outside God who stands outside of space and time coming in and filling our lack. Like, you know, we're aware of our own lack. We need to get something to fill us. 
Um, and both, they use different language, of course, but both are deeply suspicious of um, sacrifice being the thing that gets God to like us. I'll say it that way. Yeah. And so when you follow uh, Girardian logic out, you, it, you can't help but it just debunks penal substitutionary atonement, uh, which was the entirety of my world up until, yeah. you know, six, seven, eight years ago. Um, in ways that I didn't even realize, probably some ways I did, and other ways I didn't. And then open relational is the same thing. You know, it, open relational doesn't talk as much about atonement theories per se. Although more and more people are writing, I know there are people, even in the program that I was in with Tom, that are are um, writing about that kind of stuff. Mm. But it's it's also again suspicious of of sacrifice. So one thing I would say: why is this important? What that two things, number one, that helps me, it, it returns me back to this idea of a God who consents to be in relationship with us, of this consensual energy of love, who doesn't need anything from me in the same way that I don't need anything from my kids. Mm. Let's see, what's the best way to say this? I actually do need some stuff. I actually would like some stuff and I kind of <laughs> need, I need to be in relationship with them but I don't need them to do anything. I don't need them to behave in a particular way for me to love them. Yeah. Maybe that's a better way to say it. Yeah. My love in, you know, if you're a parent, you can relate to this. My, 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 the love is, it's unconditional. I can't even help it. I will never forget when our, when our daughter was born, our oldest, how quickly I fell in love and how quickly I identified this. Like one of my first thoughts was, Oh, I'm, I didn't realize how vulnerable <laughs> I was yeah. this scrawny little <laughs> naked thing. Like it just broke my heart. What are these emotions? Where is this coming from? <laughs> right. What the expletive is this thing? Right. Like I almost, I almost felt like I heard something break inside of me. Hmm. Um, so there's something about love. It, it's so, uh, it's just, it's unconditional. And I, yeah. and if that's the way a, an average parent feels, which I feel like I'm an average parent, how much more so, you know, our loving divine parent. Yeah. So the first thing I would say mm. is why is this important is because it just reinforces this idea that love is conditional. Yeah. The second thing is, and we could probably talk a lot about this. I'll try to summarize quickly it, but it's also, it, it sent me down this path because as we all know, there are, there are good things about sacrifice. There is a type of altruistic sacrifice, self-donative sacrifice that we all know is really important. So I wound up doing a little bit of work with this and trying to get my head around. I landed on this idea of uh, in English grammar, there are things called reflexive and non-reflexive verbs. Mm. So basically a non-reflexive verb is when the subject is forced to um, enter into the thing of, of being verb. And a reflexive verb is when the subject enters into it of its own volition. Again, mm -hmm. consent. And I write in, in the book somewhere, this is the difference between being verbed and verbing. Mm -hmm. And basically, yeah. no one likes to be verbed, yeah. <laughs> which is what the religious <laughs> systems, they do. They try to verb everyone. Everybody at some level realizes, once you begin to talk about that, that they want the choice to enter into the thing. Yeah. And so it gave me a helpful way to think about sacrifice. And I, so when I say sacrifice now in my brain, 
though I don't always get the chance to unpack it, mm-hmm. I automatically go to either reflexive or non-reflexive. And that's a really, it's been a really helpful, again, I think healthy way to view this. And of course, Jesus becomes this awesome example of reflexive sacrifice. Jesus doesn't do the stuff that he does because at least I don't get the sense that he does does this stuff because God is making him or anyone's making him. I feel like he's, it's like in this really interesting relational way, he's interacting with life and ultimately he reflexively chooses to lay down his life. Um, And so that becomes, that becomes our model for us. Yeah. So there's a hundred different other things Mm. I could say, but I'll, I'll just, I'll kind of land there now that, that all that stuff I think has deep, deep implications for our world. And I hope that our world can wrestle with it. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned, you know, the, the birth of your child, because again, for me, same hospital that we had the miscarriage in, but now forward, like two, however many years later, our daughter's born and my wife had a C-section and she was like out cold because she couldn't stand the pain anymore. And uh, our daughter had to go to the NICU. And so I remember they were like, everybody's moving super fast and I don't know yeah. what's going on. You know, I have all these emotions because I just saw my daughter. I don't know what's going on. And they're like, we have to get to the NICU. I'm like, what's the matter? And they're like, follow us. I'm like, oh, my wife's there. Ah, I don't know what to do. I'm like torn in a million pieces. So I follow them down the hallway and we finally get into the room. They put her in this tank, they clean her up. And they say that you can, you know, you can stick your hand in the tank and you can touch her. I'm like, okay. So they leave me in there. So it's just me and this little tiny baby. And I put my, my, my hand in there and she grabbed my finger and I'll never forget. Like you talked about those like emotions breaking. And I had another faith crisis in that moment. Cause I thought to myself, how in the world could this child be evil? Right. Cause then we're, we're taught, we're taught about original sin. We're taught about like this child now needs to grow up to do a, B and C in order to be accepted by, by God. And I'm thinking to myself, but I don't think that way about my daughter. So how in the world could God who is apparently love think that way about all of us like this doesn't make any sense to me so then we, we get home and it's like a couple of weeks later we had like this one of those children's bibles so i was reading for the bible stories at night and one of the ones was about the cross and it was written in like child language but the the general idea was that god is upset you know about people's wrongdoings and so basically somebody had to pay for that and Jesus was, oh, I'll, I'll take, I'll take the punishment kind of thing. I, I closed the book. I said to my wife, I can't read this anymore. I, we have to figure out, I've got like a hundred degrees, but we have to figure out what in the world we're going to do with our faith. Cause this does not make any sense. So that piece that you said before about, you know, that uh, love is not conditional, I think is such a yeah. huge thing that these two worlds that you so beautifully described uh, come together and, and get, and give us this gift of understanding that the love of God is not conditioned it's not conditional on anything that we do or we say it just it just is yeah if if it's a conditional then it's not love yeah yeah and that's how i was that's how a lot of us were raised but with well-intentioned people by the way sure absolutely who who, you know aren't necessarily malevolent but the way this thing has been packaged and repackaged and compressed and given to us now is it's just messed up it's not it's not right yeah. Um, a conditional love is not love. It's, and then they get to de- describe the conditions. So True. I totally agree. Parenting will mess you up. I think basically <laughs> what the listener takes from this conversation is <laughs> I need to go have a kid. That's right. 
Your whole theology will, will explode. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, everything will get messier and better all at the same time. That's right. Exactly. Hey, Jonathan, we're just about uh, out of time, but this was this was a lot of fun. Thank you for taking fun. the time to join me and uh, share your work with us. I appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I love talking about these things. We could go on forever. So uh, maybe we can do it again sometime. Thanks for having me on. For sure. And before you go, where can people find you online to interact with you and your work? And yeah. All the things? Uh, probably the easiest way is jonathanfosteronline.com. And then you can find out, I do a little podcasting myself and you can find out about the books there. Cool. You can always go to Amazon and search for me. Um, but yeah, just the website would be the easiest. Awesome. I'll put the links in the show notes and we'll do it again. Cool, man. I All appreciate right. it. Thank you. Take care. I've been busy searching for you, yeah. Trying to figure out if it's true, true. Don't think that I've been played by a fool, yeah. This mind don't mind, don't play by the rules I'm gon' make sure that I play my cards right Intuition gave me signs that everything is alright Contemplating all my moves, I'm in a fight Under pressure, feel the walls, I'm moving in, it's getting tight the shuffle getting real I hope it lives on something good I'm all in for the kill Sometimes it's getting kind of scary I'm here for the thrill Decisions on top of decisions Like I chose a pill The bottle getting kind of empty Temptations made its presence in the air It's kind of tempting Shortcuts after question But it got on my attention Uh-oh and I forgot but did I mention Looks like I won the game Made my decision I listen I've been busy searching for you, yeah Trying to figure out if it's true, true Don't think that I've been played by a fool, yeah This mind don't mind, don't play by the rules, no Kept it on the low Gotta let it flow Gotta let it go, yeah On to something new, yeah Trying to play it cool Quit with all the tools, yeah Maybe you're my calling like I'm on flight at 2 wait. Manifesting everything I take, it's not too late Running to my purpose like I'm rushing to the gate Of course it's in my planning and it's also with my faith At the end of the day, and we gon' find a way It's a fact of the price that we pay Everything shine through the gray Nothing gon' break through the shade Nothing gon' break through the hate Everything all that we claim Hit the red dot that I aim no missing, I'm focused, no slipping, I'm growing, no talking, just showing, no stopping, keep going, yeah, I'm just trying to break codes, ain't nobody I owe, this the life that I chose, and I'm blessed for it. I've been busy searching for you, yeah, trying to figure out if it's true, true, don't think that I've been played by a fool, yeah, this mind don't mind, don't play by the rules, no. Kept it on the low, gotta let it flow, gotta let it go, yeah. On to something new, trying to play it cool, quit with all the tools, 